Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi, Leslie's executive producer, in for the next hour. Leslie will be rejoining us at 5 p.m. Eastern. Uh, but during this hour, I am joined by a very good friend of the show who many of you are familiar with. If you are not, you are in for a treat this hour. A uh, good friend of the show, Nicholas Wapshot, who is the opinion editor of Newsweek and an author. His newest book is titled The Sphinx, Franklin Roosevelt, The Isolationists, and the Road to World War II. His book is available at www.norton.com forward slash books and amazon.com. If you want to follow him on Twitter, it's at nwapshot. That's N-W-A-P-S-H-O-T-T. Nicholas, welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. How are you today? I'm very well indeed, thanks, Mark. It was a treat to be paired up with you. <laughs> Absolutely. I always feel luck. I'm just always happy whenever we get you on the show, but whenever I can get to talk to you, because uh, it's funny, I was just thinking about this the other day. The first time I ever um, had you on, or we, we booked you, was because one of your pieces got published in Reuters, um, where you were discussing, you know, there was supposed to be this big scandal surrounding the Obama administration around the time of the IRS, and it was all inflated. And you wrote this piece just kind of cutting through all the BS. Uh, and basically what you said was going to happen uh, happened exactly. But then once we had you on even before then, um, it was really interesting to get your opinions on so many um, topics of politics where I think, you know, you inject a good amount of fact and opinion. So I think this will be a very good topic to have you discuss, which obviously is the top of uh, everyone's mind, which is... Uh, uh, the passing this past Saturday of uh, conservative Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Um, and, you know, I happen to be um, just on my phone looking at something Saturday, um, and I got this alert uh, from some app I barely ever use on my phone that said something about Scalia. So, of course, I went to Twitter, um, where everything comes in a lot faster, and, and saw the news about him passing. Um, and I was just kind of in shock. I hadn't really given it any thought. I, you know, just figured we would have a conservative Supreme Court justice for a long time and that I knew that the next president would have the potential of filling uh, three Supreme Court justice seats. But I hadn't really given it a lot of thought. And then all of a sudden, you know, all of these thoughts started coming in. And before I even had time to kind of let all of that process, um, there was a press release from Senate Majority Mitch McConnell that he was going to block any nominee that President Obama put forward, regardless of who they were, um, what their record was. Uh, and that kind of shocked me even for Mitch McConnell. I have to give John Kasich some credit, whether he was doing it politically or not. Um, the debate that night where he said, you know, the man just passed away and we're already beyond politicizing uh, his death. There was uh, a part of me that felt that. Um, also, I have to admit something I, I talked last hour with um, a Supreme Court reporter from Think Progress, Ian Milheiser, where there was part of me that felt a little bit guilty because I was thinking about 
all the possibilities of regaining rights, such as the Voting Rights Act, um, regaining you know some control over our election system with uh, Citizens United. And part of me felt guilty to think that way, and I think there's a lot of people that felt that way. But before I go any further with that, um, I, I'd love to know you know how did you find out, and, and what were your initial thoughts, and how have they evolved over the past few days uh, regarding that subject? Rather like you, I stumbled across it on Twitter. I mean, and it was, it must have happened only sort of 10 minutes before or something. It was, uh, it was astonishing. I mean, it wasn't, hey, it wasn't a John Lennon moment. It wasn't a JFK moment. You know, I don't think I'll remember no. forever where I was when this happened. At the same time, it has changed everything. Everything has now changed. Everything's doubled down. Uh, if you th- thought this was going to be the most important election, which in a way it always is, the, ne- the upcoming election, because that's the one that's going to change the future that we live in, you know, or going to live in. Uh, but in this, this case, everything's now been doubled up because there's sort of no good answer for the conservatives in this position. If they don't appoint, uh, allow Obama to appoint anybody, uh, then they are stuck with a whole collection of decisions which actually, because of the now the 4-4 nature of the court, it means that it goes against them. So even doing nothing, which is what they often prefer to do rather than governing or passing yeah. law, <laughs> Uh, it's going to hurt them. And the other thing is that what they're, what they're trying to do is they are trying to imply that uh, they, of course, you know, leave it to us, just wait for us to get back in and we'll sort it out. That's an enormous presumption. I mean, which candidate did they have in mind for actually winning a general election? Yeah. Because every time they appear on the TV, they look even nuttier than the previous time. And now it's all foul-mouthed and calling each other liars, too. I mean, it's a pretty wretched uh, bunch of people. Uh, uh, the, so, the, the, I mean, first of all, okay, which would, before you feel too guilty about it, by the way, I think that uh, Nino Scalia, as uh, people who are very close to him and are very close conservatives, or apparently all we called him Nino, anyway, he wouldn't have skipped a beat for a second imagining, if he'd thought for a second that his death would have triggered this sort of political turmoil, I think he would have been absolutely delighted. And he would have thought of the political aspect first. No, I think you're right. One. So I don't think we need to worry too much about his memory. He was far too much a, a, a strident political operator uh, to to not assume that uh, his passing would, would trigger this extraordinary sort of avalanche of consequences which we're still trying to comb out, uh, both in Congress, in the Senate, what it means for the election, what it means for the Republican side, what it means for the Democratic side. I mean, looking briefly at the Democratic side, you would think, for instance, that one of the arguments that the Hillary people have been trying to uh, counteract is that uh, the younger voters don't have any memories of all of the battles that, say, women and black people uh, went through, and all of their liberal supporters went through from the 60s onwards in order to change fundamental things like voting rights and uh, abortion. And it's uh, therefore by cranking up this dimension of the importance of the Supreme Court, I think it actually might help Hillary, because first of all, you need to be electable. So forget about what you believe. Just go, you, whatever happens, the Dems need a, a Democratic president if they're going to uh, make that appointment properly, if Obama doesn't manage to get it through, and that's the sort of 50-50, I would have thought, if that. It's going to be very tricky. Uh, so 
first of all, they've got to choose somebody electable, but also they've got to remember that actually Hillary comes with all of this knowledge about exactly what is at stake in the Supreme Court. And uh, the younger voters in the, the Democratic primaries, particularly the younger women voters and the younger black voters, are going to have it drummed into their heads by their parents and their grandparents, exactly the battles that were fought, and how even now the Supreme Court is one by one turning them back. So... Hey, too exciting. I mean, this was about the most exciting race there ever was anyway, but without just sort of adding on to, you know, doubling down on everything so that the stakes are now twice as big as they ever were, which is for people like you and me, just fabulous fun. It's, you know, it's very true. A friend uh, who, who uh, you know, uh, hosts sometimes, Mark Levine, I was speaking to him uh, off air Saturday night, just kind of had to pick his brain. And he said, the last thing he left me with is he said, this may be the most meaningful uh, election of your entire lifetime, um, and it, it very well could be because that fifth, uh, excuse me, that ninth justice uh, would be the swing vote on so many issues uh, that affect so many of us. So before I go any further, um, going back to what Mitch McConnell said, um, where he indicated he would block uh, whomever the president nominates, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren, uh, or I'm sorry, McConnell also said that the voters should have a say in who our next Supreme Court justice is. And Senator Elizabeth Warren, as usual, I thought, responded perfectly by saying, and this is a quote, Senator McConnell is right that the American people should have a voice in the selection of the next Supreme Court justice. In fact, they did when President Obama won the 2012 election by five million votes. Um, which I thought was a very strong point. And the other argument that Republicans have been making um, is that a president shouldn't be able to appoint a Supreme Court justice during his last year in office, yet their hero, Ronald Reagan, uh, nominated uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who was appointed by not just the Senate, but a Democratic-controlled Senate during Reagan's last year in office during 1988. I mean, McConnell even voted for him. And before we go any further, I want to play this quick audio clip of uh, John Oliver from over the weekend. Uh, where he does a very good job of highlighting the hypocrisy uh, by Mitch McConnell. This is from, I believe, uh, the audio from McConnell is from 2005, but I know it was during uh, one of the um, George W. Bush years as president, and John Oliver does a good job of highlighting the hypocrisy of Mitch McConnell on this matter. The fact is, there is now a huge vacancy on the Supreme Court that needs to be filled. Or, if you listen to the, the Republicans in the past 24 hours, not. In an unprecedented move, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell immediately released a statement saying this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. We're not going to give up the U.S. Supreme Court for a generation by allowing Barack Obama to make one more liberal appointee. I think it's up to Mitch McConnell and everybody else to stop it. It's called delay, delay, delay. Well... That does not bode well because Mitch McConnell is actually pretty good at delaying things for people, whether it's uh, legislation, court appointments, or orgasms. Now, interestingly, a strange unwritten rule of the Senate is being cited to justify this behavior. There is a rule in the Senate, it's an informal rule called the Thurmond Rule. The rule that Strom Thurmond put forward was no president in the last six months of their presidency should be able to appoint a judge that has a lifetime appointment. But if Mitch McConnell does want to evoke this rule, he will need to be careful because during the George W. Bush years, when Democrats were trying to pull this Thurmond rule to prevent lower court appointments, he was pretty categorical about it. Our Democratic colleagues continually talk about the so-called Thurmond rule under which the Senate supposedly stops confirming judges in a presidential election year. This is a seeming obsession with this 
rule that doesn't exist is just an excuse for our colleagues to run out the clock on qualified nominees who are waiting to fill badly needed vacancies. Yes, it seems the Thurmond rule is a bit like God. When things are going your way, you don't bring it up a lot. But as soon as you're in trouble, it is all that you talk about. And it's also worth noting that the Thurmond rule generally applies to the last six months of a president's term. So even if it does apply, it wouldn't come into effect until July 20th. Although, what more fitting tribute to the life and work of Antonin Scalia than the Senate really trying to stretch the definition of late term? <laughs> Also, also, it is, it's weird. It's weird to see a debate over an unwritten rule when you consider what Antonin Scalia stood for. You talk about someone who defended consistently the original meaning of the Constitution, who understood that the Constitution was not there to be interpreted based on the fads of the moment, but that they were there to, it was there to be interpreted according to its original meaning. He's right. Scalia loved the letter of the law. So let's look at the letter that applies here, shall we? Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution says, The President shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint judges of the Supreme Court. That's the President. This President. There is nothing in the Constitution about you getting to delay him for a year because of some tradition. I couldn't uh, have said it better myself. I don't think almost anyone could. Great job by uh, John Oliver of HBO. That clip uh, is courtesy of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver uh, from HBO. We're going to get Nicholas's take on uh, the points brought up there by John Oliver, as well as um, the history of uh, Ronald Reagan appointing Anthony Kennedy in 1988, uh, his last year in office during a Democratic-controlled uh, Senate. Um, also, we want to get your take. You're welcome to join Nicholas Wapshot, who is the opinion editor of Newsweek uh, and an author, uh, as well as myself, Mark Romaldi. Uh, to do that, just give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. We'll be right back after this short commercial break. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. Back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Romaldi in for Leslie Marshall. I am joined by a good friend of the show, Nicholas Wapshot, who is the opinion editor of Newsweek and an author. Before we go any further, and we do uh, have uh, some calls on the line we're going to get to so you can speak with Nicholas and myself, I wanted to get your take, Nicholas, on the points brought up by John Oliver as well as the point brought up by, um, I guess we'll go down the line. First, it was Elizabeth Warren talking about how the voters have already spoken in response to McConnell saying that they should have a voice in it. Um, and then we can move on to the the hypocrisy about uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy being appointed in the last year of the Reagan administration. Nicholas? Okay, yeah, one thing at a time then. The, first, first of all, uh, who is right about um, the uh, democratic solution? Who has been appointed to make this decision? Well, I'm afraid the Constitution divides it in two. So it's true to say that both Mitch McConnell and uh, uh, Mrs. Warren are absolutely right about that. Uh, neither of them is right. And, and who can complain when actually both of them try very hard to assert the, the rightness of who's been chosen? The fact is that we chose a president twice in a row. At the same time, whatever happened, the Democrats lost the Senate two years ago. And uh, that's, that's hurting right now. And uh, if the Democrats and the Senate, we would be all laughing our heads off as liberals because we'd be able to sail straight into a justice uh, of our picking. Very so true. I say that Mitch 
McConnell, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's in, you know, he's in some possession of the, of the law here, in which case he's holding on tight. I can't get too excited. I know that John Oliver likes to get uh, sort of fake uh, indignant about things, but I can't get too excited about Mitch McConnell saying one thing about Thurman's rule and uh, this uh, now, which is opposed to what he said a couple of years ago, and uh, Harry Reid vice versa. The fact is that's what they're employed to do. These are, these, this is what their job in life is, which is to spin the advantage at every second of their lives, including Mitch McConnell coming straight out, by the way, uh, within minutes of uh, the death of Scalia being announced and making a highly contentious decision, which is that there will be no Democratic nomination passing the Senate before the change in the presidency, which is a very bold thing to say. And you can see that he said it for a couple of reasons. First of all, just by saying it, he's going to, be, he's going to have to live by it. He's had, he, to actually change his mind now is, is much worse than uh, being ambivalent in the first place. And it means that actually that's good news for conservatives, because they will try to hold him to account. If there turns out to be in two, three months a sort of compromise candidate that comes up, then that's a different thing. Uh, but uh, he may well want to change his mind. But unless it's, the candidate is conservative enough, I'm afraid that, uh, that Mitch McConnell is going to have a very red face if he changes his mind. The, uh, the other thing about um, <coughs> Mitch McConnell's, uh, what he said about the Thurman rule altogether, which is the last six months of the presidency, you shouldn't, and it, this has got nothing to do with the Constitution. It was just uh, practice in the, in the Senate. The, uh, but the fact is, if you look back at the last president, which is when Ronald Reagan appointed Kennedy, look exactly how that turned out. It was a Democratic Senate, and it was a Republican president, a very Republican, a conservative Republican, Reagan president. And yet, in order to get a justice on at all, they had to choose somebody who was a little more ambiguous, who wasn't a straight-down-the-line conservative, and that's turned out to be Kennedy, who's turned out to be the surprise swing vote in the last five years or so in all the major decisions, including keeping Obamacare and so on. So uh, you, I guess you've got to be a bit careful. Uh, if you actually... Uh, the conservatives are really gambling, aren't they? Because actually they could get someone who's sort of conservative now, 50, you know, 50, 60 percent of the time, it would suit them. But instead, they're going for the big thing. They're going for a proper Republican president with a Republican Senate in the new year appointing a true old-school conservative who is suitable to replace uh, the constitutionalist, the literalist Scalia. Uh, well, that's a gamble. But just from where I'm looking now, that means they've got to win the presidency. And I would not say that uh, if I was a single $100 betting man, I wouldn't put it on the Republicans right now. I think the other point to bring up before we head into break, Nicholas, is that if, if they want to play hardball with the filibuster, technically they wouldn't only have to win the presidency. Democrats could come back and throw it in their face and say, well, you don't have 60 Republican votes in the Senate, and it does not look like they're going to gain at all. If anything, it looks like they may lose control of the Senate. So I think that's another interesting point um, that could be brought up in the future. Um, when we come back, we're going to go right to your calls. Just one more quick break, and then you will be able to speak with uh, our good friend Nicholas Wapshot, who is the opinion editor of Newsweek and an author. His newest book again is titled The Sphinx. Franklin Roosevelt, The Isolationists, and The Road to World War II. You can get it at www.norton.com forward slash books and amazon.com. This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall. We'll be right back to your calls after this break. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Romaldi, guest hosting for Leslie Marshall. As promised, we're going to go right to your calls as we're joined by good friend of the show, Nicholas Wapshot, who is the opinion editor of Newsweek and an author. Uh, we are going to, uh, let's see. 
We're going to go to uh, Paul in Washington on line two, who is listening on Progressive Voices. And Paul is actually a big uh, uh, knowledge uh, knowledge buff uh, on Supreme Court matters. Um, he's called in before and is uh, very good uh, on the issue. Paul, go ahead. Uh, you're on with Nicholas and myself. Well, hi, Mark, and good to talk with you, Nicholas. Uh, I think I might have been on with you before, but um, yeah. <laughs> listen, this... this this Supreme Court thing with the Republicans is just so much folly. Okay, now you've been talking about the appointment of Anthony Kennedy, and uh, let's take the Republicans on their terms, because Anthony Kennedy, they would argue, was the second choice of Ronald Reagan because the uh, Democrats would not confirm Robert Bork, who was nominated in 1987, so the circumstances, they say, were not the same. Okay, they say nothing like this has happened in 80 years. So let's say, no, it's actually been 84 years. 84 years almost exactly to the, not to the day, but to the month. This is when the appointment of Benjamin Cardozo uh, in 1932, February. This was after uh, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. had resigned from the court at the age of 91. Now, Benjamin Cardozo was appointed, and he was widely respected as the premier jurist in America at the time. And as a matter of fact, Harlan Fisk Stone, who had been appointed in 1925 by Calvin Coolidge, said that, that uh, Coolidge should appoint Cardozo instead of himself, right? And he even told Herbert Hoover that he would, that Stone himself would step down from the court if it meant getting Cardozo on the court. So what happened in 1932? Cardozo was uh, nominated and confirmed by the Senate within weeks. He was in, he was into, uh, took his place on the court in, in March of 1932. This was the, your lame duck election year. And what happened? Well, Benjamin Cardozo, along with Harlan Fisk Stone and Louis Brandeis, became the three musketeers, the liberals on the court, right? So... What happens all the time is that the Republicans are constantly lamenting their appointees and the decisions they make. I mean, we go forward to, to uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who said that Earl Warren, worst damn mistake I ever made. How about William J. Brennan? Second worst damn mistake I ever made, right? And then you look at the decisions in Roe versus Wade. It was, a, it was the Warren Burger Court. It was a 7-2 to decision. It was only one what, one Democratic appointee, Byron White, who, who dissented, the other uh, dissent was, uh, was William Rehnquist. Then you go forward. Well, what does, what does, uh, what does uh, Marco Rubio say? He wants to appoint justices who are overturned decisions that were made by this court, this Republican-dominated court. Uh, he, he said the Obergefell versus Hodges, the, the same-sex marriage decision, and Obamacare. They're constantly remembering. And then uh, Ted Cruz says, well, I would have reported... Uh, Antonin Scalia's uh, law clerk. So we need crony. We need a crony judiciary. As if the fact that Robert, uh, that John, uh, John Roberts, who was a law clerk of William Rehnquist, isn't crony enough, right? These guys are constantly lamenting and dissatisfied. And so the only way it works out, if the court is any good for them, is if these, if every decision is in their favor. If it's not a decision they like, well, the, the, the court's stacked or it's rigged. They don't consider that maybe the justices are actually making decisions that have some constitutional basis, and that conservatism, as they see it, isn't what constitutional basis is that it is. And I think, Paul, the other point you bring up is that the Supreme Court is not supposed to be political. Now, everyone would you know, kind of laugh that off at times, but there are plenty of cases. For instance, Obamacare, many people thought that it would be overturned on the Supreme Court, and not only was it um, deemed constitutional, but it went through two challenges. Right. Um, the other thing, looking at precedent, is that you know President Obama's term expires in now it would be 339 days. The Senate itself has never taken more than 125 days to vote 
uh, on a successor from the time of nomination. And on average, a nominee has been confirmed uh, or you know re- rejected or withdrawn within 25 days. So, I mean, I think the point that you bring up uh, is you know very well taken. The point that Nicholas brings up is yes, but they have the power to do so. However, I think the point in between is that yes, they have the power to do so, but there is no other time in history that we can point to that anything has happened like this, Nicholas. And the other thing is, I think this really solidifies the the damnation of this current Republican Congress over the past seven years as the party of no. Well, I, if I could just... Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, just one more case, which was before the Cardozo appointment. Uh, and they say this is too close to election. The people should decide. Well, Grover Cleveland, after his first term, appointed Melville Fuller, as Chief Justice, and he was confirmed and took, and took his seat on the bench less than a month before the election of 1888. So all of this is just such, it's such folly. Uh, go ahead, Nicholas. <laughs> yeah, Nicholas, go ahead. Thanks, Paul. Well, there are two things. First of all, it's not just, of course, uh, the, the justices that the Republicans imagine as soon as they're given a job, the government job, they turn left. The fact is that they, apart from Ronald Reagan, who's uh, achieved a saintliness uh, beyond measure, every last Republican pre- president they dislike, and they think that they went wrong, too, <laughs> including yeah. probably even those who know nothing about him, uh, Herbert Hoover. You know, who you were mentioning, you know, actually used the powers of government remorselessly, actually, except when it mattered. <laughs> uh, but the other thing, the other thing is what you're talking about here, and which is the, the fatal flaw in your argument, both of you, I'm afraid, is that you're both citing precedent as if we can learn from the past about what's happening. This cycle is, can I remind you, thoroughly unique. It is different in every way. I cannot think of a time when, when we get to South Carolina, we've still, the race is led by two outsiders. They, they weren't even members of the party six months ago, and yet they're leaving the field. This, this is such an upside-down election that I don't think we can learn too much about uh, whether this has ever been done before. It, in, when it comes to appointing justices, they're just going to fight hardball, I think, the Republicans, right down to the wire, in which case it's going to be an education for the American people, and it will redound on the Republicans. I fear. Well, okay. So you fear you fear that it will, obviously, because I think a lot of the time, you know, the other thing that people bring up, and I, I thought this was a good point that was brought up yesterday, um, is that you know it, Hillary and Bernie have both had different messages as to why people should come vote. Uh, but many people could argue, yes, but no matter what, because of the gerrymandered districts, that Republicans are going to re- retain control of the House, even if the Democrats can, you know, uh, regain control of the Senate. So whatever you try to do, you're still going to it's still going to be obstructed. You're really not going to be able to get much done. The best we're really going to hope for is that you stop Republicans uh, from doing bad things and get a little bit passed on your own. Now they can say, look. We can swing the balance of the Supreme Court if you elect me and if you elect more Democratic senators. So they have something very powerful to offer voters now to come out to the polls. Don't you think so, Nicholas? Yes, I do. All that we know about the millennials, and they're pretty well tracked. And anyway, let's just take the generation up until the age of 30, say, which is slightly broader than that. But on the whole, they are, they are substantially more liberal than their grandparents. Uh, not difficult, you might say, but it's, uh, it, it's the truth. And the fact is that if a lot of them have been carried away with the Bernie Sanders uh, uh, lure, which is fine, which is sort of pie in the sky, uh, I think that what Hillary can tell them about is the fact that the liberal uh, inheritance, which 
uh, people like Hillary Clinton and that whole generation had laid down for their daughters and granddaughters and so on, uh, is, at, is now at risk in a way that it's never been before. This is going to be a unique election because for the first time, uh, in living memory probably, or at least certainly it'll be the first in anybody's lifetime, that they will have to simultaneously on the same day in November vote for the president, the Supreme Court, and the Congress. Some will get a chance to vote for the Senate, too. Uh, it, that is pretty unprecedented. It's incredible. I mean, you're, you're touching every, every branch of government. Paul, before we let you go, I wanted yeah. to give you one more chance to, to comment. Well, I, I think that what, one thing the Republicans seem not to think about is there are also consequences to, to uh, what they consider to be a 4-4 court, uh, in the sense that there are cases before the court now that uh, if we just consider them 4-4, uh, will fall in the favor of let, let's say li- liberal uh, liberal causes. For instance, the um, the, the, uh, the California versus the yeah, California Teachers exactly. Association w- uh, will fall back to the Abu decision of 1977, uh, given that there's there's not a, not, not an, e- an evil an equal court. And then the other one is, or there's an equal court, and so if it were found that way, if found four four, it would just go back to the boot. And then the other one uh, was thinking of is. They say, well, uh, the, the um, executive orders by Obama on immigration will certainly fall now. Well, when you think about it, if Obama was going to win in the Supreme Court, we weren't expecting that Antonin Scalia was going to be the swing vote. So it, it would have to be somebody else on the right, so to speak, uh, and that possibly being Anthony Kennedy, who's still on the court. So that could, that could still swing five to three. So I don't know if they're really thinking this through uh, exactly Clearly enough. It, it is a bit of a mixed message, though, isn't it? I mean, if, if, if you're a young woman living in Texas who would like the option of an abortion uh, in the next few years, uh, that's going to be much more difficult because I think that is a verdict which goes against. On the other hand, redistricting, I think, goes in favor of the liberals in as much as uh, that sort of shenanigans that goes on in places like Texas where they draw boundaries around the people they like, uh, are, well, more likely boundaries around the people they dislike. Uh, I think that, in fact, uh, goes a liberal direction. So it, it's a mixed bag, but it's true. There are consequences. They're going to have to pay for it. Absolutely. Good points by both of you. Before we go to break, I want to take one more call. Uh, Tamara in uh, Joplin, who is on line four. Tamara, go ahead. I have a question. Why couldn't President Obama ask Justin Stephen Breyer to come out of retirement and maybe that would get the Republicans off their duff and let him nominate somebody? And if not, then he could turn around and do a recess appointment. Well, the recess appointment is something I've heard argued by uh, liberals, but I I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that would last till the end of the president's term. And then I believe the Senate would have to vote on it after that, after the next president uh, takes uh, office. Isn't that correct, Nicholas? Yeah, they, yeah, that's exactly correct. The, uh, it, it's, the Senate is in recess now, by the way, so actually the, the time to do it is right now. Because once they're back, the fact is they need not go into recess. That is, that even though they would normally be in recess, they could describe it as something else. As long as there's one senator who walks off yeah, the floor. Yeah, they've done day, that shenanigans, as you call it, before. They'll do all that, so that's hopeless. Uh, but but, but a, a recess appointment actually isn't so bad for Obama. After all, he would get himself a majority, and then, of course, he's banking on a Democratic president. Uh, maybe actually that's a very uh, neat way out, but uh, I don't think that Mitch McConnell's looking for a neat way out for Obama. No, and I, th- I think it's an interesting proposition because 
I think, honestly, the Democrats have the winning argument here, and I think that's going to, to just strengthen their cause in November, which I already think they had a great cause. If they're, you know, it looks like they're going to face, like you said, uh, a very volatile, uh, unpredictable outsider like a Donald Trump or a Ted Cruz, which, let's face it, is, is not a great general, uh, does not show that they have a great chance to win in November. Um, now, if, if Obama did that, some voters, you know, you know, he would be constructed, seen as, oh, you you went against the will of the people. And just framing it politically, I think it might be more risky. Um, and, I, and Obama doesn't strike me as one who who would make a move like that. Um, although you know, I think there, there's plus and my pluses and minuses on both sides, which you kind of articulated there, Nicholas. We're going to take one more break uh, and then we'll come right back. We'll come right back with Nicholas Wapshot after this quick commercial break. If you have any questions um, or you want to make any comments on Justice Antonin Scalia, is passing his replacement um, and some of the matters we've been discussing. Uh, now is the time to do so. And the last segment we're, segment we're going to talk about Saturday's Republican debate, which dealt with the issue of what to do uh, regarding Antonin Scalia's uh, vacant seat on the Supreme Court, as well as many other issues. And uh, there's been some comments by Donald Trump regarding Ted Cruz and an independent run uh, and suing Ted Cruz about his citizenship within the last 24 hours. Uh, as we talked much, uh, as we mentioned, a very volatile and unpredictable candidate Donald Trump is. Uh, if you have a, a question or comment uh, for Nicholas, who is the opinion editor of Newsweek and an author, uh, you can give us a shout at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall, who will be back in about 15 minutes uh, to rejoin us. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. 8886 Leslie. Does that make me crazy? Does that make me crazy? The next president needs to appoint someone with a proven conservative record. Similar to Justice Scalia. I think it's up to Mitch McConnell and everybody else to stop it. It's called delay, delay, delay. We have 80 years of precedent of not confirming Supreme Court justices in an election. It's not even two minutes after the death of Judge Scalia. I just wish we hadn't run so fast into politics. Obviously, the war in Iraq was a big, fat mistake. Took him five days. He went back. It was a mistake. It was a mistake. Took him five days before his people told him what to say. George Bush made a mistake. We can make mistakes. But that one was a beauty. I am sick and tired of him going after my family. The World Trade Center came down. He had the gall to go after my mother. I got to tell you, this is just crazy. huh? This is just nuts, okay? Jeez, oh, man. Thank you for including me in the debate. Two questions already. This is great. Marco has a long record when it comes to amnesty in the state of Florida, Speaker of the House. I don't know how he knows what I said on Univision because he doesn't speak Spanish. And second of all, <laughs> the other point that I would make... Marco, si quiere, díselo ahora mismo, díselo ahora. En español, si quiere. I feel like I have to um, get into my inner Chris Christie. You shouldn't be flexible on core principles. Um, I like Donald. He is an amazing entertainer. Right now, today, as a candidate, he supports federal taxpayer funding for Planned Parenthood. I disagree with him on that. That's a matter you of principle, and I'll, and I'll tell you. You are the single biggest liar. You probably are worse than Jeb Bush. You are the single biggest liar. Now, Donald has this weird pattern. 
When you point to his own record, he screams, liar, liar, liar. If you want to go... Where did I support want, it? Where did I support it? Go hey, Ted, want, where did I support it? Go, if Donald Trump is president, he will appoint liberals. If Donald Excuse Trump me. is Excuse president, me. your Excuse Second me. Amendment will go away. These attacks, some of them are personal. I think we're fixing to lose the election to Hillary Clinton if we don't stop this. That uh, those were some of the highlights from Saturday night's bloodbath, aka the Republican debate. Uh, probably the nastiest so far, I would say. Um, Nicholas, would you agree with that? You know, certainly the nastiest. I think the nastiest primary debate that I can remember at all. Uh, I mean, you know, in the past we've had to, you know, feed off a couple of scraps of uh, you know slight uh, ungentlemanly behavior. But you know, this is all pants on fire stuff. This is playground stuff now. And I think that it's irritating to agree with John Kasich, but when he says, you know, I think that we're driving people into uh, the hands of Hillary Clinton by showing, by behaving this way, uh, I think that uh, he's right. And I think that in a way, that it's uh, the court battle. They've got to be very careful about the court battle because the court battle is going to be rather like closing down government. It might be a great conservative ruse, a great joke, a gag for those people who are, you know, solid, out-and-out conservatives. But for the rest of the nation, it's a pain in the ass, and I don't think that they'll be rewarded for it. And so, to mess around quite so flagrantly with the system of justice might go badly. But anyway, the, the debate was uh, fascinating, though I think that actually the, the killer was, um, because after all, let's not forget, it's Trump who they need to beat. Trump coming out saying that President George W. Bush lied us into war, which is usually the stuff that you get way on the left or you get way on the right. But I mean, to bring that right into the mainstream and accuse Jeb's brother, as he kept pointing out, uh, of doing this heinous thing, I think could be a game changer, because it might be, although this has been said before, it might be just one step too far, that even though most uh, or many Republican voters, uh, certainly those who follow Donald Trump, have no illusions about George W., at the same time, there is a sort of residual loyalty to the tribe, to the Republican tribe. And when, uh, when the leader, former leader gets uh, messed around like that, it's different. I was looking at the, uh, when George W. was speaking yesterday, Day at the rally uh, with his brother Jeb, uh, I felt a sort of strange sense that it might be just this old patrician notion that they, they, they're conning us into. But I sensed a sort of confidence there, which would suggest that actually we might expect to see, particularly in South Carolina, a very pro Bush state, we might see Jeb do noticeably better than we expect, in which case he might pick up a bit of mo. Certainly his uh, direct rivals, people like Marco Rubio, don't seem as if he's going anywhere. He seems to be stumbling a bit. That, that sort of human Pinocchio that he turns out to be, yeah. uh, with somebody else pulling the strings, and sort of, uh, if you remember, Pinocchio was seduced into the uh, the fairground by a couple of wily foxes. He, he does look sort of adrift on the stage there a bit. Uh, Dr. Carson, well, just forget it. I mean, he might just save his money and his breath by now. And uh, and John Kasich, well, you know, I guess if he just hangs in there, but, but if he was going to get a breakthrough after New Hampshire, you would expect it might be in South Carolina, but I think Jeb's going to beat him to it. So, it's a, a, a a fascinating, wonderful debate, full of wonderful, you know, meat for us to pick off the bones. Uh, where does it leave it with? I think that Trump wins, but Jeb puts in a better performance than we guessed. You know, I, I thought you, you hit the nail on the head with the clip of Trump going after Jeb that way, or actually George W. Bush that way. It was very, it was jarring to the system uh, to, to hear him say that for something that many people who have, you know, outside the 
the um, the calling out to the lines in politics have said, I guess you could say, not any main, you know, um, people in the excuse me, Democratic Party have come outright and said that he intentionally did that, intentionally lied, you know, um, in a while. It was said during the Iraq War. Um, but very fascinating stuff as always. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to check out Nicholas on Twitter, you can do so uh, by following him. It's at NWAPSHOT. That's at N-W-A-P-S-H-O-T-T. Uh, please uh, get his newest book, which is titled The Sphinx, Franklin Roosevelt, The Isolationists, and The Road to World War II. You can get it at www.norton.com forward slash books and amazon.com. Leslie Marshall will be back to uh, join us in just a bit. So if you're uh, hanging on, it sounds like there's going to be a press conference from President Obama. Um, there are, is some speculation that he may be announcing uh, his nomination for Supreme Court. Uh, so for those callers on the line who wanted to talk about that, uh, you're more than welcome to uh, hang on and talk with uh, myself and Leslie uh, coming up in the next hour. If you want to get on hold now and get in line, we have just a few lines open. The number to do so is 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. This has been Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall. We'll be right back.